Well, ladies, um, as always, I'm all very excited about what we're looking at this morning in the Word of God. And I was trying to sift through and funnel it, you know, trim it down just a little bit because it's just so good. And so my daughter, Lindsay, called this morning and she was meeting with someone that she's counseling. She's working as like a guidance counselor for the private school where her children attend. And she was meeting with a teenage girl and she's kind of talking through the basic issues of it and how to approach it, questions to ask. And anyway, so we got to pray over each other for that. And then my sweet friend, Debbie Curry, who teaches a Bible study in Jackson, Tennessee, Debbie and I were friends from college. So we go all the back to Union University, and she is the one when I got so excited about what God was teaching me through his word, because I'd been praying for months, Psalm 42.1, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul longs for you, O God, and God answered that prayer, and I literally was a hungering and thirsty animal for the word of God. I just could not get enough, and so Debbie was the one I would call when I go, okay, <laughs> like dollar devotion, Donna's calling this morning, I've got to share something with you, and I would just get so excited, and she was also the one I intended to call the morning that the Lord said, share it with Grant, who was in kindergarten at the time, and I've shared this before, but my response to the Lord was, Lord, he's only in kindergarten, like it's just going to go over his head, he's not going to get it at all, and the Lord said he doesn't have to get it, he needs to catch your passion. That's so very true. And what we're talking about today in passing on the blessing to the next generation, I think is going to be very, not just insightful, but instructional for us personally. So we're seeing now, our core truth this week was, if you want to leave a legacy, you've got to live a legacy. And we're getting close to the end of our study, which is so hard for me to believe, but we're in Genesis chapter 49 this week. And Jacob is blessing his sons. And what we're seeing here, as you studied this week, not only was he blessing them, he was actually prophesying over them. And you were able to see on a chart, as well as kind of track through scripture, how exactly what he said would happen, and exactly the way he described them is exactly what did happen. God was speaking to and through Jacob as he blessed his sons. But we're also going to see that not all of them were locked into that prophecy. Because if they choose to follow God wholeheartedly, God transfers them from the lineage of the cursed to the lineage of the blessed. And we're going to see that in some of the sons. We all have a longing to be blessed. And it goes back to the very beginning. In fact, God blessed Adam and Eve. He set the standard and gave us the example Genesis 1, 27 and 28 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What did it just say? God blessed them. And then he spoke over them what he had commanded and called them to do. And then we see God blessing Abraham. In Genesis 12, 3, God said, And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And we know that. We are blessed because of Abraham. We have been grafted into the very lineage of Abraham, the chosen of God because of Jesus Christ. But what about Esau, the one who missed the blessing. The cry of his heart, in fact, in Genesis 27, 34, when Esau heard the words of his father, I've already blessed, and the one who's been blessed will receive that blessing. 
he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, oh my father. Do you hear the pain and agony? He had missed the blessing. Now I want us to see that because we need to understand the importance and the power of a blessing over a person's life. And Esau longed. He was crushed that he did not receive his father's blessing as the firstborn. But we know Jacob had gotten it through deception. And let's look at how Isaac blessed him in Genesis 27. Then his father Isaac said to him, please come close and kiss me, my son. And we're going to be looking at the components of a blessing. And one of them is close proximity, touching, looking at, speaking to So he came close and kissed him, and when he smelled the smell of his garments, he blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Now may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. May peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you, and blessed be those who bless you. Now, did you notice that's the same blessing that he gave to Abraham? Those who curse you, I will curse. Those who bless you, I will bless. He said the exact same thing to Jacob. So as we move into Genesis 49, and Jacob is speaking these blessings of prophecy over his sons, we're going to see that because God is not bound by time, God sees, as Dana said, the beginning from the end and everything in between. God saw and based on their actions gave prophecy to Jacob about his sons and about their descendants. But we see their legacies not set in stone, but directly related to their choices and their choices impact their descendants. So we want to talk a little bit this morning about how to break the curse, okay? When uh, you look at Genesis 49, 6 through 12, in fact, let's look there because 6 or 5 through 7 is a prophecy blessing slash curse over Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now I want you to remember that, and if you did your study this week, you know that that's exactly what happened to Simeon's descendants. Simeon's descendants eventually were absorbed by the tribe of Judah. But not so with Levi's. Levi broke away from the curse because he made a stand for God. When Moses came down from the mountain, when the people had adulterated themselves to the golden calf, and what did Moses say? All of you who stand for God, join me. And all the tribe of Levi came and joined Moses. And they actually killed those who had led them in rebellion against God by worshiping this golden calf. And because of that, They were transferred from the lineage of the cursed to the lineage of the blessed. And their tribe became the priests and Levites who would minister to the Lord in the tabernacle and later in the temple. You have in your workbook, and if you would take your workbook out, I want us to look at it briefly. On pages 216 and 217, a couple of weeks ago, we were asked to look at in the transformation day Our own family tree. 
And on page 216, you've got your exercise. And then on page 217, you have the picture of the tree. And we were to look back through our maternal and paternal grandparents at our parents and our own lives to see if there were any patterns of sin that we needed to deal with. Now, this comes from... Exodus 20, verse 6 in the Ten Commandments, it's repeated again in Deuteronomy chapter 5, but it comes from these verses. Listen, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So we see there are two lineages, and it actually goes all the way back to our first study in Genesis when we were looking at Adam and his descendants through Cain versus his descendants through Seth. And if you remember, if you go down through Cain, seven generations, you come to Lamech, who was the first polygamist and also a murderer. So we see how sin progressed and actually became worse from generation to generation. But when we go through Seth, who God gave to Adam and Eve after Cain killed Abel, when we go seven generations through him, and when Seth was born, the Bible tells us this was when men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So they began to worship the Lord in earnest. You go seven generations from Seth, and who do we get to? Enoch who walked with God and was not because God took him. So not only does the curse and the sin progress, but the blessing did as well. So we want to be those who leave a legacy of blessing, a lineage of blessing to our descendants. And to do that, we must choose to obey and follow the Lord. We choose to line up under his word, to obey him. And when we do that, what does he say? He will bless through us thousands. God blesses far, far more than he curses. The curse goes to the third and fourth generation, but when you become a blessing through whom God flows, you bless thousands. He flows through you. So if you did not, I just wanted to mention this, because if you did not take time to fill this out, I'm going to ask you to go back to it this week and to pray through and ask the Lord to show you specific things in your lineage, your family line, whether it's your mother's or your father's, and to write those things down and to pray through them and ask the Lord, Lord, is that in my life? Because you remember the little funny that's really not all that funny. Your dysfunction is more dysfunctional than my dysfunction because my dysfunction is my normal. We don't recognize our own sin because we've lived in it and with it for so long. And so it takes the Holy Spirit to open our eyes. In fact, that's what James is talking about when he says, look into the perfect law of liberty, the word of God. Look intently. And when we look intently, not only do we see the Lord, but he allows us to see ourselves in light of who he is. But it is never for condemnation. It is always to conform us to the image of God. It is for restoration, for redemption, for healing, for wholeness. That's why God convicts us. It's his loving kindness that draws us to repentance. You know, some people bristle at the fact that God says he's a jealous God. He is jealous not of us, but for us. Because he knows how destructive sin is. And that the goal of the enemy is to come in and steal, kill, and destroy. So he is never jealous of you. He is jealous for you because he loves you and he desires for your well-being, your flourishing, your shalom in your life. So let's think about tracing the lineage of sin 
beginning with Abraham. What do we know about Abraham? He lied, right, twice about Sarah and threw her under the bus and she's taken into Pharaoh's harem and then Abimelech's and God wakes Abimelech because he had already appeared to them and said, a year from now I'm going to come and Sarah will have given birth to a son. So he wakes Abimelech up in the middle of the night, the first night she's there and basically scares him to death. Says, if you touch that woman, you're a dead man. He's like, I haven't done anything. I haven't done anything. Do you judge the righteous? He even understood, I'm completely righteous in this one, Lord. Surely you're not going to judge me for that. It was Abraham's fault because he had lied. And so he restores his wife, plus blesses him with other things. But he was a liar. Isaac does the same thing about Rebekah. And then what does Rebekah do? Rebekah lies. And she hears that um, Isaac is wanting to bless Esau. So she talks Jacob into deceiving him and making him think he's Esau. And he steals by deception the blessing And then he has to leave because of the dysfunction within their family. Esau's wanting to kill him, so he leaves for 20 years. He never sees Rebecca again. She's in this scheming, thinking he's going to be gone for a little while. He'll come back, and everything will be fine. Everybody will forget. The storm will pass over, but she never sees her son again. He comes back after 20 years, and we know while he's gone, what? He's deceived by Laban. God blesses him when he wrestles with the Lord, and God begins then to change the character of Jacob. Not only does he change his name from Jacob to Israel, but we see a marked change from that point on until the Jacob we see today who's blessing and prophesying over his 12 sons. But what do his sons do? Not only do they lie and deceive, they had even contemplated murder. So do you see the progression of that sin in that family? So God moved pretty drastically to get their attention, did he not? He took what they intended for evil and turned it into good by preserving them but also teaching them a lesson. Because we know that the first time they came to Egypt to get grain, Joseph tested them. And when he found out from them they had another brother, Benjamin, what did he do? For me to believe you, the next time you come back for grain, you're going to have to bring your younger brother. That way I know you're not spies, that you're really honest men. And there were in, he puts them in prison for three days, and then he brings them out. Instead of keeping all of them, he just keeps Simeon, and the rest of them get to go back. And we see a dramatic change in Judah. Well, this week as you were studying Judah, I pulled a quote that we had from one of the commentaries by Kent Hughes. He said, Judah was an arch sinner like his brothers. But unlike them, the scripture records that a change had taken place in Judah's life. Evidently, his infamy with Tamar had precipitated a deep humiliation of soul. What did he say? She is more righteous than I. He recognized he he was in the wrong and she, Tamar, was more righteous than he, which then provided the lowliness essential, listen to this, to an elevation of character. Did you get that? You've got to be broken before you can be elevated in character. It was Judah who later pleaded with the viceroy for his brother Benjamin and offered himself as Benjamin's substitute, a prophetic shadow of Christ's substitutionary death. That was on page 251 of our study this past week. And so we see there was a change in Judah. We know there's a change because we all act out of what we believe. Now, I can say a lot of the right things. I can spout off a lot of biblical knowledge. I can give you a lot of facts. But if my life does not line up with what I am professing, I don't really believe it. I'm just saying it. 
In fact, that makes me what? A hypocrite. Because I'm saying one thing and I'm doing something else. So when we step back and evaluate our own lives, we can look at our actions and our speech and see what we actually believe. Am I constantly speaking words of fear and discouragement, hopelessness? Or do I know my God and I'm speaking words of blessing and hope and purpose? It all depends on how well we know our God. Because if we have a, an accurate, a high and exalted view of God, one that is actually worthy of how he has revealed himself to us in scripture, then we will not worry. We will not let discouragement take us down a dark hole. Instead, we will recognize it when the enemy tries to bring it against us and upon us, and we refuse it, and we replace it just as Jesus did with the truth of God's word. And we all have our areas that we're more susceptible. And maybe my area is different from your area. So you need to ask the Lord to give you specific verses that you wield as your sword against the evil one. And that is how we live in victory. That is how we are more than conquerors. That is how we are overcomers in this life. It is through the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Word of God wielded against the enemy and our own flesh, reminding ourselves what we know is true and then acting on it, putting it into action. In fact, our youngest daughter, Bethany, is in a little discipleship kind of accountability group with a couple of other women. And they meet very early on Tuesday mornings. And they're going through the book of Proverbs. And she just had baby number four. And after having a baby, if you've had children, you know it's... Oh, they're, they're getting ready to show you a picture, but it's not of her baby. Um, they... Uh, when you have a baby, it just upends everything. You know, your schedule's upended. You're not sleeping at night. You can get cr cranky and cross. And she said, I realized I was snapping at David. And she said, he's coming in from work. He's, you know, he's exhausted. And I've been with the kids all day. I'm exhausted. I'm not sleeping at night. And I'm tired. And she said, I just realized my words were not words of life. That I had been tearing him down and being short with the kids. But working through Proverbs, and the Lord's been really showing her the theme that he wants her to focus on right now is speech. And so she's been evaluating her speech. And I went by yesterday to, I picked Ainsley up from school and then went by to get to see everybody yesterday afternoon. And we were just sitting and talking. And it's so much fun to talk about how God is speaking and teaching your own children the word of God and to be instructed and encouraged by them about what God is revealing to them. And just the fact that she's been immersing herself in, in this busy time in Proverbs and God is speaking to her and encouraging her to watch her speech, to speak words of life and not death was just so encouraging to me. But we desire to live what we actually know and profess because true change, and we see it in Judah's life, true change responded in a change of action. Because he became willing then to stand in the place of Benjamin, to give his life for Benjamin, which was a picture of the substitution of Christ. So how can you and I be a blessing? How can we not only be a blessing, but give a blessing? How can we actually live it out? There's a quote from the book, The Gift of the Blessing, and Dana has alerted the bookstore. They have ordered this book in case 
those of you who would like to get it would like one. They're not in yet, but they will be. Um, Here's this. Listen to this quote. A family blessing begins with meaningful touch. It continues with a spoken message of high value, a message that pictures a special future for the individual being blessed and one that is based on an active commitment to see the blessing come to pass. That's a beautiful definition of what a biblical blessing contains. In fact, there's five components of this blessing that are a part of that definition. And the first one is meaningful touch. Meaningful touch. So I want us to review what we looked at last week and how Jacob blessed Joseph's son, his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Genesis 48, last week, he had Joseph come in with his two sons and they are placed in the place of the firstborn because Reuben had lost that privilege. So Jacob said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. And then Joseph brought them close to him and he kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your children as well. Then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said... The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads and may my name live on in them and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now what are you seeing here? You're seeing meaningful touch. He's looking at them even though he can't see them well. He's bringing them close. He kisses them. He's speaking a blessing. He's speaking a bright future over them. That's exactly what a blessing is. And Jesus was the model of doing this. He knows that God created us with a need to be blessed. And you think about how many people when Jesus healed them, dealt with them, what did he do? He touched them. Even lepers that nobody else touched, he touched In Mark 10, it talks about people bringing their children to Jesus to be blessed. And these are Jewish families, and he was a rabbi, a teacher, a prophet. Even if they didn't recognize him yet as the Messiah, they wanted him to bless their children. So they're bringing them. What does it say? Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Now this is a quote from the gift of the blessing. Jesus was not simply communicating a spiritual lesson to the crowds. If he was, he could have done so by simply placing one child in the center of the group as he did on another occasion. Jesus was demonstrating his knowledge of a child's genuine need. Jesus knows because he knows how he through the Father was the instrument of our creation. And he knows as a man, fully man, in the flesh, our need to be recognized, to be seen, to be touched, to be blessed. And so he took those children, and did you notice, into his arms, placed his hands on them. He would have done this individually. Now I want you to think about newborns because newborns are born with a desire to be sought 
And I actually do have a picture of y'all, for y'all, of Walker, Allie's little newborn, because he's just gotten old enough that he's cooing and responding, and I'm holding him. We were there last weekend, and I'm holding him, and I'm doing the, oh, hey, sweet baby, how are you know, that we do with the baby. And he's smiling and cooing and trying to talk to me, and they start doing that, oh, oh, thing, you know, and you're going, oh. It's like a complete fool of yourself, and you don't even care. But what are they doing? They're responding to you, looking intently into their eyes, cooing over them, talking to them. That's an expression of love. That is how we pour into a child, and children thrive when they have it. You see how they long for it. In fact, uh, Bethany's little one, Margot, you know, for the first few weeks, they can't really focus, but they're, they're still, they're searching. They're trying to lock in. She's just getting to that point where she kind of locks in on you, and she's almost at this, the same verge that, place that Walker's is. And you just, oh, it just gets me so excited because they're so precious. I just want to hold them and love on them. And then Ann Michael, oh, my word, her two-year-old. Steve and I went around the neighborhood with them to go trick-or-treating last week, and Ann Michael was dressed like Liberty from Paw Patrol, and she had a little hat with the little flappy dog ears, their little they're little dogs, if you, for those of you that don't know. Um, and anyway, she had her little bag. She's two. She was so excited. She ran up to every door, and she would hold her little bag out and say, trick or treat. And then she would turn around and come back, and Bethany videoed her. One of the times, she goes, I got one. Hey, Papa, I got one. <laughs> just melt your heart. I could just, I mean, I'd just scoop them up and kiss all over them and love on them. And I just love it. And I hate it when they get old enough that they don't want you to just, you know, make a scene. But, you know, because we do have some teenagers now also, but I do still sneak some hugs and, and bless them with words of blessing, pointing out the strengths, the gifts I see God has given them. That is how you can bless your children, your grandchildren, those that God allows you to teach, to pour into. God has created within us a need to be connected and to have words of life spoken over us. That's what a blessing is. And that's what he's called us to be and to do for each other. Do you know that children thrive when they receive that, but if they don't receive it, they can actually die? It's called failure to thrive. And it really came to my attention back in the 80s and 90s, after communism fell in Romania in 89, there were all these babies that were in orphanages that literally Many turned their face to the wall and some actually died. And that was when a whole lot of people in America and other places started adopting some of these orphans out of these Romanian prisons. Because in orphanages, the number one cause of failure to thrive is simply a lack of touch, stimulation, and love. A child may even die due to missing these essential requirements for growth. So it's part of the way God created us. It's the way we're wired. So the first part is... Touch. And then a spoken message. You notice each of the patriarchs spoke a message over their sons, their descendants. God spoke a blessing over Abraham because he was the first. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 18:2 that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Oh, that we would be those who only speak words of life, who speak words that build others up, not tear them down. And then a blessing attaches high value to the one being blessed. Through the spoken blessing, you are acknowledging that you place high value on this person. You are speaking life over them and telling them you are valued, not just to me, but God values you. And he has a bright future for you. And that's the next one. You're picturing 
a special future for the one being blessed. And if you noticed as you worked through Genesis 49 this past week, Jacob used a different word picture with each of his sons to bestow the blessing. Now let's pick back up where we left off a moment ago and let's look at Judah, beginning in verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine, and his teeth white from milk. An abundance overflowing is what he's ending this blessing with. And we know Jesus Christ would come from the lineage of Judah. And what is one of the names given to Jesus? The lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion is also the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. But Judah is set apart, given a blessing, a royal blessing, because his descendants would be kings, David and Solomon, for two. And then the last one is an active commitment to fulfill the blessing. Each child is unique. Ask the Lord to give you wisdom as you commit to train up a child in the way they should go. That's literally according to their bent. The way God has created them. Not the way we want them to go. Not to be the person we want them to be. But as you pray and seek the Lord, ask him to give you a specific scripture or scriptures to pray for those that you are discipling, for your children, grandchildren, those that you teach in a life group. Ask the Lord to give you a blessing for them from his word. Now, I did that with my children. Steve and I both did. We have basic scriptures that we prayed over them that were just about, you know, growing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and our favorite and their fellow man. Just various scriptures like that that I think are kind of generic, that you want to pray for all of your descendants. But then I asked the Lord with our children to give me specific verses to pray for them that pertain to how God wanted to use them in his kingdom. And what's interesting, I have prayed the general ones over our grandchildren for now 15 years since we had our first one. And just the other day, the Lord prompted me to make out cards, one for each child, and I've got them on a ring, little ring-bound holder, and I'm going to ask the Lord to give me scriptural blessings for each one of them that I will give to them when they graduate from high school and pray them should the Lord grant me life and breath, pray those blessings over them. There's nothing quite like that. And I've shared with you guys before about my nephew Garrett that God told me when he was 13 he was going to be a man of integrity and honor, a warrior of the Most High. Those words were as clear as if somebody spoke them to me. And he ran from, he lived for the Lord in high school, ran from God in college, came back to the Lord, ran again, and was just struggling. And it was when he went to do a PhD at a secular university in Florida in philosophy that God allowed him to meet a young woman who had been led to Christ in her master's program by a charismatic Catholic. And she had gotten alone in her apartment complex and got on her knees and just said, God, I want to know you like she knows you. And God saved her. And she became an incredibly 
hungry student of the Word of God and of those who have walked with him. And she has, she's a deep thinker. She has a poetic nature. She's just a beautiful young woman inside and out. And they met, and she at one point when they were dating said, look, if you can't lead me spiritually, we can't continue to date. God could do that at a secular university. And so now they are helping with the Southern Baptist church plant. Garrett actually preaches there periodically. He disciples young men on the campus of this secular university. I just can't tell you how exciting it is to be able to pray with him and for him and over him. And he has allowed me to do that through the years, and Steve as well, to pray over him and to see him becoming who God said he was going to be. How exciting is that? I'm not making it happen. What God is showing me is exactly what he did with Jacob. He's showing this is who they're going to be. This is who I have called them. Remember Abraham when he threw Sarah under the bus again the second time and God said to Abimelech, go to him. He's my prophet. He will pray for you. He was not acting prophetly. But what was God doing? God is not bound by time. God saw Abraham as the mighty man of God, the prophet that he would be because God knew he saw the end from the beginning, and he knew who he'd called Abraham to be would be exactly who he would be. Now, I know there may be some of you in here this morning, and you're saying, Donna, you talk about dysfunction. i got the most dysfunctional family on the planet. Well, you know what? If you're seeing it, that's really good news. <laughs> because Jesus Christ has given you an invitation. And if you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, he is inviting you into his family that has no dysfunction. He alone is perfect and faithful and true. And if you will turn to him, even just as precious Ashley did, and just said, I want what she has. I want Jesus. I want to know Jesus. And he saved her. There's no specific words you have to pray. God's looking at your heart. And if your heart is turned toward him and you want to know him and you want to receive his gift of salvation, all you have to do is ask. And he will forgive you and he will save you and he will begin to heal you and set you free as you immerse yourself in his word and as you seek to allow him to teach you and transform you, which is what our days of transformation are all about. It's like, okay, we've studied. It's awesome. It's great information. We get excited about it. But how is it changing me? How is it impacting my life? I don't know how many of you were able to be here Sunday night for the mission celebration I'm, I'm overwhelmed. Like, I'm the pastor's wife. I don't know half of this stuff that our church is doing and the ministries that we're partnering with and the church plants across the nation and the pathway partners that we have here in the city. I mean, I know of some of them, but I had not heard all the stories. They're so powerful. I was so moved by that. And I sat there, in fact, at that table right there, looking up here, listening, and thinking, Lord, our church as a whole is choosing to live to leave a legacy. And we're providing pathways and opportunities for our people to serve in the city, to serve nationally, to serve internationally. There's no excuse for us not to get involved and to live for the kingdom of God and to see his kingdom progress until Jesus Christ comes back. And ladies, I, I don't know about you, but if you look at what's going on on the world stage, I'd say we need to get in high gear because Jesus is coming back. And we need to be living in such a way that we are leaving a legacy and we are sharing the gospel and we are impacting the world with the light of Jesus Christ. Now, we are blessed. We talked about on our day of transformation how we can live to leave a legacy. I thought about how blessed we are with role models in this church. Dana Street, 
women's ministry director, does everything she does for the cause of Christ and to benefit and build up the body of Christ, primarily women. All that she does here. I don't know how many of you notice these elaborate sets. She and Mark Alexander plan this out but what you don't know is there is incredible symbolism and meaning in every set that is tied in with what we're studying. In fact, she probably just needs to take lunch one day and explain it all to us <laughs> because she's the detail person. I'm not. I just see the big picture, and I don't do all the little details. And when somebody shows me, I'm like, oh, that's really amazing <laughs> that you thought to do that. She's so multi-talented. She not only writes for our Bible study, she edits the entire thing. It's a mammoth job, but why is she doing it? Because God has gifted her to do it and she has offered her gifts back to the Lord and he is blessing them and he is multiplying them. We have women and small groups and churches doing our Bible studies all over the, all over the world, literally. But we had a story last week, we just found out, a woman who is in another state in the United States started up doing our very first Genesis study and the woman she was doing it with got saved after the first lesson. Praise the Lord. Is that not just awesome? But then we've got Jean. Look at Craig and Jean. Everything they do since they've gotten saved is to be able to pour back into the body of Christ, to grow, to make Jesus known, to travel internationally. Bless Craig's heart. He fell on an international mission trip. He's got fractures in his spine, and they're still planning to go in January. <laughs> Nothing's going to stop them because the Holy Spirit has given them a call, an insatiable desire that other people come to know Jesus. Well, Tanya Franks. Any of you know Tanya Franks that works with our single adults? I found out Sunday night she's actually T. Franks. She's just T. One of our partners um, here in the city at Red Door Urban Missions has nicknamed her T. And the single adults have partnered with this particular ministry. And he came personally to thank our church for the impact that our single adults and our church has had helping them reach the lost in the area of the city that is so depressed economically and without Christ, so dark with gang violence and drugs, and they are penetrating that lostness with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was so incredible to hear that story. But not only that, Haley Simons, Hayden and Laura Simons' daughter, who is a junior in high school, went on the Peru mission trip with our high school last spring. And while she was there, she said their motto for the week was, life is a short-term mission trip. Just let that one sink in. We are here a very brief time in light of eternity. And all of our lives should be lived like a short-term mission trip. And she said that convicted her because while they were in Peru, they were constantly sharing the gospel. She said, I would cross the street just to intercept somebody, introduce myself so I could possibly share the gospel. And she said, it so convicted me, like, why am I not doing this at home? And so she came back. She's a student at Houston High School. And she started taking her Bible. Thought the Lord just said, start taking your Bible to school with you. When she has a break, she opens her Bible. She only had one Christian friend prior to this. After she started taking her Bible, other Christians would walk up to her because they were so excited to find another Christian at a public school. And then even a Jewish friend said, you need to meet so-and-so. I think she's a Christian like you are. <laughs> 
out of that, she calls me one day, gets my number from her mom, calls me and asks if I can meet her for coffee. This was last year when she was a 10th grader. I was just so impressed with this young woman. And so we met for coffee, and she's telling me what's going on, what had happened since the mission trip, how God was bringing these girls into her her life, and she's wanting to start a Bible study. And she wants it to be something fairly simple so that seekers could come as well. And she started the Bible study. They meet one morning a week at Levy Creamery, and she has started it back this fall. And she shared a Sunday night as well. I'm just sitting down here thinking, oh, my goodness, can I grow up to be like Haley? <laughs> like this junior in high school. They're choosing to live, to leave a legacy. They're choosing to live for what is eternal. They're choosing to invest their time, their talents, into those things that will last. So I have to ask you, what are you personally doing to leave a legacy? With your family? With your church family? For the gospel and the nations? I want you to think about that. As we stand, if you will stand with me, because we're going to close this morning reading out of Revelation chapter 5. In light of the one whose name we bear, can we do anything less? I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them, what was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. May we join as we close this morning in worshiping the only one worthy. And may we add to that chorus of amens, our amen. So be it. You alone are worthy.